Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Since last month's leaked draft of the Supreme Court's opinion that would strike down Roe v. Wade, debates over reproductive rights have been brought to the forefront. One recurring thread is the role of adoption, specifically adoption as an alternative to abortion. This framing not only ignores that access to abortion is a public health issue, but it also reinforces harmful tropes that romanticize adoption. To give us more insight into adoption, social work, and adoption professionals, today I'm joined by Dr. J. Ron Kim. Dr. Kim has worked in foster care and adoption, both public and private, with at-risk young moms and with adults with disabilities in residential care. Dr. Kim completed her PhD in social work at the University of Minnesota and was a project coordinator at the Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare at the School of Social Work. She is currently an associate professor and BASW chair in the School of Social Work and Criminal Justice at the University of Washington, Tacoma. Welcome, Dr. J. Ron Kim. Thanks for joining us this morning. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I'm super excited to be in this conversation with you today. Yes, I am so excited to have you because, you know, when, you know, when those leaked documents about Roe v. Wade, you know, were exposed, right, and came out, it seemed like there was just a whirlwind of conversation, of course, around abortion, you know, specifically, of course, but then also it, it seemed like almost immediately thereafter, there were all these conversations about adoption and really pushing adoption as like, oh, you know, who needs abortions when you can just, you know, put your child up for adoption and, you know, everything that came out of that. And especially as an adoptee, right, it seemed like I was kind of thrust into that or at least I felt very much um, like I was part of that conversation, whether or not I wanted to be, because you saw so many opinions about both abortion and adoption. And so I thought it was really important to have um, an expert like you, someone who does research on adoption, but also someone who's worked in social work and worked in different settings like that to come on the show and help us think through not really Roe v. Wade and all of that, but more so the adoption part and this idea that adoption is the alternative to abortion, which I'm like, ah, uh, yeah, I don't really think that's how that works. So I'm just glad that you are here with us today to kind of help us think through some of these conversations. Yeah, thank you. Did you by chance, I don't know how active you are on, a, um, on Twitter, but Boy, adoptee Twitter was really <laughs> reacting to, to the SCOTUS leak and the conflation of adoption as being uh, an alternative to abortion. I mean, I think one of the things that I think is, is interesting is when we talk about reproductive justice, the debate tends to be on this framing of adoption and abortion. Um, the other thing I always think about too, in terms of reproductive rights, and if you think about um, some of the work of like Ricky Solinger and Dorothy Roberts is, it's not just about, you know, who has the right to um, decide if they want to end a pregnancy, but also who has the right to be a parent is, is another part of it too. And I think that that's also kind of getting lost in th these conversations, but, so there are some really smart people who are doing work on reproductive rights, adoption, and, um, you know, so I'd kind of like to, to let your um, listeners know about some of them, but Gretchen Sisson is, is a professor in San Francisco. I can't remember exactly which school she's affiliated with, but she did a study looking at um, abortion and adoption. And her study, she found like 91% of the women who did not have access to abortion did not place their child for adoption. 91% of them decided to raise their child and parent their child. Mm -hmm. And that's not at all, I think, what many people who are advocates of um, just adoption instead of abortion understand. I mean, I think that they think uh, eliminating abortion as an option just means more kids will end up being adopted. And, you know, you know, the part where they talked about the domestic supply of infants and oh, what yeah. that really did. 
I mean, that's actually not a new thing at all. I mean, first of all, it was taken out of context um, from the CDC report, but deeper than that, since like the 1950s, there have been these debates about the domestic supply of infants. And what you usually hear is that there are fewer babies that are available for adoption for families who want to adopt than there are, you know, parents who are going through the process. That's one of the reasons why people went overseas for so long, right? We know this. Um, people went to other countries because you could get young babies uh, quicker and younger and, and supposedly healthier than in the United States. And then, you know, um, so there tends to be when we're talking about babies available for adoption and notice that they're not talking about older children who are in the foster care system or other kids who um, find themselves without parents, we're really talking about babies. And so this is, it's hard not to see it in terms of just like procuring babies for people who want them, rather than really thinking about it from a child welfare perspective. So mm -hmm. that's just one of the things that really struck me was um, kind of the conversation just centered around babies and around women being kind of vessels or vehicles um, for babies for other people. The other thing that was mentioned in that SCOTUS report um, was the safe haven laws. And yeah. are, you, are you familiar with that Korean film, The Baby Box? Yes. <laughs> Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that film in case they're not familiar with it? Yeah. So there's a Korean pastor who has been advocating for these baby boxes. They're they're similar to safe haven laws here in the sense that they're they're literally places where you can abandon an infant. And again, it's the same sort of um, mythology um, that if we don't offer safe haven laws or baby boxes um, for parents to um, relinquish without any criminalization. And, and I'm for not criminalizing parents who find themselves in need of wanting to who feel like they can't parent their child. I think there needs to be ways to, to address that. Mm -hmm. But baby boxes and safe havens allow people, allow parents to drop their kids off without providing any information about who they are. That's where the, the lack of repercussion aspect of it comes in. And as adoptees, that means we are left with absolutely zero information about ourselves, no medical histories, no identifying information, nothing. It's such a um, false binary that, that the only options are, you know, dropping off babies without any information about who the parents are, or they'll be criminalized. And then oftentimes you'll hear this rhetoric, well, you know, then these are the parents that would leave their kids in dumpsters. And I just don't believe that those are the only two options that parents who are in crisis experience, mm -hmm. that, that, they're, that these are the two options that, that they would pursue, you know, safe haven or baby boxes, or, um, or they're gonna leave their child in a dumpster. I think that that means as a, a society, we need to do a lot more thinking about how we support parents who are in crisis so that those don't become, you know, the kind of the go-to, options. Yeah. I mean, oh, there's so much there. I just want to, uh, to comment on kind of how you opened, which is yes, adoptee Twitter was, you know, on fire <laughs> um, in, in all of these conversations. And that's definitely where I saw a lot of adoptees, um, both one trying to kind of explain, right. Why this dichotomy between <laughs> kind of like abortion or adoption, or, you know, that was an incorrect way to kind of think about some of these issues. But then where I also saw a lot of, you know, adoptees being attacked as well for having opinions that maybe, you know, question if adoption is this happy, you know, win, win, win situation that is often framed as, and kind of to your point about these kind of um, false binaries, um, you kind of see that coming through in some of those debates as well. Um, and it's like, yes, I can think critically about adoption, you know, and, and have a vast array of opinions or insights about it as well. It's not so, you know, cut and dry as people might 
you know, want it to be. Um, so yeah, but adoptee Twitter, definitely, (laughs) um, a lot, you know, happening there. And, you know, that's part of the reason why I was like, we need to have, uh, informed conversations about these topics so that we can get out of, you know, thinking that, oh, people are either going to have safe haven and use that or abandon their child in a dumpster. Like there's a range of possibilities there, not only to mention there are other things that we could be doing as a society to support families, right? And to support also health access to healthcare and a whole host of other things as well. Um, and so before we get to this, like, oh, you know, abandoning children in, in, in dumpsters versus, you know, safe havens, right? I, I, yeah, I totally call it the losing Isaiah phenomenon. Yes. If you remember that movie too, right? Um, it's just like all the worst stereotypes and myths about, um, you know, first of all, about um, women who have addiction, right? And the ways that we frame white women who have addictions, black women who have addictions. And, the, you know, of course, the worst thing that can be imagined is that uh, a parent who's struggling and finds themselves in crisis or, um, you know, is going to put their child in a dumpster. Like that is just the, the biggest stereotype, the biggest um, myth. It happens so rarely. And safe haven laws aren't actually really used that much. And then there's all these problems like Nebraska had a safe haven law where they didn't, their legislation didn't put an end, um, like how old the child uh-huh, could be. Yeah. And parents were literally coming to child welfare offices with older kid teenagers saying, I can't parent them anymore. I think what that tells us is that our society just doesn't have enough support for struggling parents. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, um, but the first thing we do is we villainize parents instead of looking at like what's happening behind it. So what I teach my social work students, you know, it's like you, we need to be looking beyond just the, the presenting symptoms to find out what's the root cause of what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Life, you know? Absolutely. So important. And I, and I think what, some other points that you brought up as you were talking, um, you know, who has the right to parent or who we think has the right to parent, right? This idea around who are, who is fit to be a parent or who is deserving of parenthood, um, I think is really key to these conversations as well, as you mentioned. Um, And then similarly, who has the right to end a pregnancy, right? And then under what conditions or what circumstances, I think all of these are important to this broader conversation about reproductive rights and the laws that do end up getting passed. Right, yeah. Well, when we're talking about who has the right to be a parent, um, we tend to favor people who are middle-class, heterosexual couples, right? I mean, and especially when it comes to adoption, that's what we're talking about too. So when they talk about the domestic supply of infants um, and the, um, you know, the fact that there's not very many um, infants for adoption, they're really talking about mostly white infants for white couples who want to adopt. Um, As I mentioned before, you know, I'm involved in a lot of organizations that are really concerned with the number of kids who are in foster care. Yeah. And, um, you know, we have all these kids who, again, talk about trope languages, um, things like um, languishing in foster care. So we have all these kids who have spent a good amount of time in foster care. Um, their parents, many of them are kids of color, and we um, terminate their parental rights you know, the parents' parental rights. And so now they're what we call, quote unquote, free for adoption. That means legally um, free for adoption. And um, we don't see lines of people rushing to adopt those kids. Uh, You know, again, like with everything else, um, we want, society seems to want babies to adopt, not older kids. So when we're talking about it from a child well perspective, really, and we're thinking about what meets the needs of children and youth, you know, it's those older kids who are going to age out of the foster care system without any families, without any protections, no one, you know, that they can call on in case they, um, you know, need help with a job interview or have a car breakdown or need a ride someplace or, you know, all the things that family is supposed to be there 
you know, to help support you as you're making that transition from your youth to being an adult. You know, yeah. I have two uh, adult children, one's 28 and one is 24. And I think about all the things that we continue to do to support them. Um, so if we're going to be trying to support adoption, why aren't we thinking about trying to support adoption for older youth who are in foster care, who really need that, um, rather than thinking about ways to increase the number of babies, mm -hmm. you know, that it just doesn't seem to make sense to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you picked up uh, or really highlighting a key part of, of this conversation around adoption is these very um, like salient or resonant tropes or cultural ideas around babies, around adoption, around parenting um, that continue, we, that come up, right? Every decade or every, you know, every so often. And so it is very much kind of um, stuck in our minds to think about adoption in a specific way or thinking about parenting in a specific way um, or thinking about um, foster care, right, in a specific way. And oftentimes those are very limited ways or very um, stereotypical ways as well. Um, I think that point that you made about, you know, this domestic supply of infants, a, a conversation, again, that has been repeatedly kind of coming up throughout history, but now we see it, you know, again in 2022, and it picks up all that kind of baggage of how this conversation has happened in previous decades, right? and everything that is, that's kind of entailed in that. Uh, when it comes to thinking about older children in foster care, and I'm so glad that you brought that up because again, we always think about babies, right? That's where our mind goes to and babies are so cute and, you know, like adoptable. And then older kids get left out of that conversation. And we often see, you know, a lack of services and a lack of support um, for those older children as well. So I think it's so important when we're thinking about adoption as this, some kind of magical cure for just all these different things that are happening that know we need to think more critically and more expansively about what adoption is and what it does and what it doesn't do. Yeah, adoption is often framed as being a service for kids, but I think we need to be more honest about the fact that um, it serves adoptive parents' needs as well. Sometimes I think we don't think about it, you know, they're it's framed as, oh, it's just all these benevolent parents or adults who want to take in a child and raise them. Um, when we think about older kids who are in foster care, you know, their identities are more developed. They know who they are. They remember their birth families, their first families. They've been oftentimes part of these larger extended families, and they end up in foster care. And I often wonder how much of the um, the reason they aren't adopted has something to do with the idea that people who adopt oftentimes want to start fresh with a baby so that they can kind of imprint all of their family values and give them their new name and raise them as quote unquote one of their own. And what we know, you know, from the research that's been done on adoptees is that when we grow up, we don't just, you know, forget everything about our past. Many of us go through these, we go through a lot to try and uncover and unpack and go back and reconstruct all the things that we've lost along the way by being adopted. Oftentimes that includes the names that we were given when we were born. For those of us who are um, multiracial or transracially adopted, it's trying to uncover all those different parts of our ethnic heritages and our racial backgrounds and um, medical history is a big part of it too. Um, even when we're talking about infant adoption, there's been a growing movement towards openness so that the child doesn't just, it, you know, there's this old idea that we were a tabula rasa, a blank slate, that it was, we, had, we carried nothing, we remembered nothing. Um, but even research on adult, domestic, same race, white adoptees show that they have that same desire and need to find out who they were and where their family, who their families were and where they came from and that whole background in history. So, you know, it's, it's um, super complicated. And I just, I often wonder if, you know, older kids, people, you have to accept them for who they are. Mm 
Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's a harder thing to do when you can adopt a baby that supposedly doesn't remember anything or know anything. And then you can kind of socialize it totally the way you want. You can't do that with uh, a 14 year old who's been in foster care because suddenly you have to really think about what's best for them and with their their needs. And it's more of a the relationship has to be a little bit more mutual. It's not just top down. Mm -hmm. So. I don't know. These are the musings that I have when I think about why there's all these older kids in foster care. And yet the rhetoric is that there's all these parents who want to adopt and yet these kids aren't being adopted. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you bring up so many important points in thinking about just this conversation about adoption, right? And who often gets left out of these conversations, but more importantly, that the way we frame adoption, um, we think it's about the child, right? And we say it's for, you know, the best interest of the child, but is it really in practice, right? And, you know, some of the ways that you just mentioned right now, we see that, okay, we're not putting the child at the center of this, of this process, but in fact, it is adoptive parents and their desires that really get, you know, the attention and that we kind of shape this whole industry around. And I think that's just something really important um, for listeners to, to think about when it comes to adoption, um, because it's not just so simple as, you know, parents or families getting babies, right? And babies getting this quote unquote better life, but it is very complex. Well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. J. Ron Kim, Associate Professor in the School of Social Work and Criminal Justice at the University of Washington, Tacoma. And we've been talking about adoption and kind of unraveling some of these myths around adoption. Um, and I think it's just so important, especially now, as probably you've been hearing a lot about, you know, adoption or reproductive rights, particularly around abortion. And so, J. Ron, I'm just so glad that you're here with us this morning and really helping us think through, you know, what is adoption? Is it really serving the best interest of children, of families, right? And, and how we might be thinking about this differently um, as, you know, these debates will continue. And especially as we see states starting to um, enforce very restrictive um, laws around um, reproductive rights as well. Yeah, so I was thinking too about something you said about uh, before the break about adopt adoptees, particularly older adoptees, right? Um, so one kind of shifting the focus from us kind of with our obsession about babies, right? In this conversation <laughs> about adoption, but two, thinking about adoption and um, I think about some of the losses that are inherent in adoption. And we often don't talk about adoption in that way. So I'm wondering if you could just kind of talk about some of those losses. You mentioned them before. So in the context of older, older kids, especially like thinking about those losses of, you know, identity or even relationships. Um, but are there other ways we might um, be thinking about loss as it's associated with adoption as well? Well, I mean, our, our society is really hyper-focused on biological connections and so I think the first thing that really comes to mind is thinking about the ways that people who are adopted lose um, a kind of a sense of intergenerational history. Mm -hmm. And um, I've done some research with adult Korean adoptees who are parents, and it's really, um, it was just so interesting to hear their, their, um, the way they talk about becoming parents themselves and how so many of them really wanted and desired uh, to have a child by birth because they um, missed having that biological connection with somebody, mm -hmm. um, you know? And so that's one of the things that we lose. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of ambiguous loss. And so I write about it a lot. Um, and so when we're talking about ambiguous loss, um, I think about it, especially for those of us who are um, transnationally adopted, who were born in another country and adopted to a different country. But, you know, we lose that sense of um, kind of grounding in where do we belong? We're raised in the country of our adoptive parents and, and where we end up, but we have these ties 
you know, to the country that we were born in. Um, you know, you and I first really started to get to know each other when we were in Korea, you know, yeah. gathering and, you know, thinking about how important it is for uh, me personally, and for many other Korean adoptees I know to go to Korea. It's, um, you know, when we talk about it as our motherland, there's motherland tours, there's these uh, conferences, there's these homeland trips that lots of adoptees use. Um, and then to kind of just feel like, okay, um, you know, I missed out on all of this. I missed out on, for many of us, it's the food. I personally did not have any Korean food until I was almost 30 years old. Because yeah. my parents didn't know what Korean food was. You know, they had no idea. It's not that they were trying to deprive me, but they just didn't know. Um, you know, and so it's uh, all those things. It's like, and if I wanted to go back and live in Korea someday, I mean, I've lost my language. I've lost my ability to speak Korean. I can take lessons, but it's difficult um, to become fluent. And then even so, there's all those kind of cultural expectations. It's like just the ways people do things mm -hmm. are different. I, you know, you have to observe and try and figure out what to do so you don't make a big faux pas, you know, <laughs> and you don't uh, like insult an elder or something when you're there. Um, we lose out on all those cultural nuances. Mm -hmm. uh, I think just a sense of, you know, knowing where we come from and having some groundedness there is is another loss that I think lots of us happen have and. Domestic adoptees experience that too. I have friends, for example, who are adoptees who were born in one state and raised very differently in another state. And like, so like one of my friends was born in Tennessee, but was raised in Washington state. And the cultural differences between being raised in the South, right? And being raised in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's big. And so then when she is in reunion and um, hangs out with her um, first family, you know, then there's also those same kind of cultural differences about how, how you do things that are there. And those are also losses too. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing is um, just always in the back of your mind, knowing that there's another kind of extended family there that many of us will never have the opportunity to know. So we lose out on just kind of thinking of ourselves in kind of that expansive way. Um, and th those are other losses, you know, in addition to things like having our names changed and, um, you know, we tend to think really nuclear because that's what our society tends to do when we think about families, let's think about the nuclear family. But many of us, likely have big, large extended families that we've never had the opportunity to know and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing that because so much of the conversation around adoption is usually around gain, right? Like uh, a child is gaining a family, a family is gaining a child, right? Or, you know, love, care, all of that. But in adoption, even in, you know, the best case scenario of adoption, right? Uh, there's still a lot of, of loss. And I think for folks, you know, who even for folks who aren't adopted, you can think about the way um, in our society in the United States right now, now, there's so much emphasis on like a 23andMe or Ancestry.com, right? So even just for the non-adopted person, there is a deep desire to kind of go back into your ancestry and find out, you know, who your great, 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 you know, whomever was and what they were doing. So, you know, just thinking about that and imagining for folks who are adopted, who have, you know, less information to even begin that type of search. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up that. Um, I, you know, I, like a lot of people, I watch those shows, those ancestry shows, like Finding yeah. Your Roots and things like that. To your point, you know, lots of people are interested in tracing their genetic history and going back and, you know, trying to find out who their ancestors were. And I feel like when adoptees do that work, we're pathologized for it. People get upset, like, oh, aren't your adoptive parents enough? Why do you need to go and find out your so-called real parents in quotes, quotation marks, you know, and it's not that I just think that many of us, most of us have some kind of primal desire to know where we come from and adoptees are no different and we shouldn't be prevented from, from that. I mean, I didn't even bring up the fact that 
we have false identities from the get-go, right? Because they redact and they seal our original birth certificates in most states in this country. And many of us who are adopted internationally from other countries have false information on our um, papers. And so even trying to do that work back um, is really difficult and challenging because we don't have accurate information and we're, and we're not even allowed to have that information. And the state laws prohibit us from having our own birth records if you were born in this country. And um, that's a huge loss. Um, it just, I mean, I could go on and on about it. I, I think, you know, every November at Thanksgiving, um, you know, so there's this whole Surgeon General um, Thanksgiving the Thanksgiving dinner table is where you uh, talk about your family health history. And for adoptees, we don't have that. We don't have our health history. So every time we go to the doctor or every time we go to get medical care and they ask us about our family risk and history, we have to say, you know, not available because we don't know if our, you know, if cancer runs in the family or if heart disease runs in the family, those sorts of things too. So we we really are at a disadvantage in even just our own uh, advocating for our own health. Mm, absolutely. And I, I think for adoptees, that is one of the ways uh, that we often think about um, first family, right? This health information, right? Um, just kind of this kind of cut and dry, like I, I want to know what might be <laughs> in store for me in the future if I decide to have biological children. Um, so even something as simple that most people I think would take for granted about having that information, uh, we, you know, we typically don't have. And just thinking about this idea of, of loss, as you mentioned, you know, so much um, misinformation or fraudulent paperwork. And so as we think about our very human need to feel like we belong somewhere or to feel like we have a sense of self, mm -hmm. it is difficult when, you know, something um, as simple as a birthday might not be accurate. And I'm just thinking about culturally how much emphasis we put on birthdays and so, you know, right, but some of us don't have that or we learn later on that what we thought was our birthday wasn't our birthday. And so just thinking about how jarring that could be when what you thought you knew about yourself turns out not to be exactly true. And that's a lot of what happens through adoption, whether it's through sealed, sealed birth certificates or you know, lack of information in other ways. So just something for folks to really be thinking about um, in these conversations, you know, about adoption. And I'm glad you brought up, um, you know, that Surgeon General kind of like idea of like, here, talk about, you know, talk about this, right? So, or these different cues and holidays or things, right, around family. But also it made me think about, of course, um, November being National Adoption Awareness Month. So this idea of adoption and this push for adoption is very much uh, a part of our culture as well. You know, you have a whole month and then if you are, um, you know, involved in any type of like Christian church and there's like orphan Sunday, right? So it's right. very prominent in our just kind of in our lives to think about orphans, right? And adoption through that kind of lens. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, no, I just think about all the adoptees who, um, you know, are at their Thanksgiving table during National Adoption Month. Everything is about celebrating and lauding how wonderful adoption is, trying to encourage more families to adopt. And yet, you know, it's also the time when, you know, you realize I don't have any access to my health history. And there's, you know, yeah, everything that you just said, uh, yes, I, it resonates with me. Right, yeah. Um, and I was thinking too, because I know you've done a lot of work and you're currently, of course, still doing a lot of work around training of social workers and even thinking about potential adoption professionals. Mm -hmm. um, and it made me, and when you were talking earlier about foster care, it made me think about uh, my time working with child protective services. So back to those questions of like, who has the right to parent, right? And who is parenting in the quote unquote right way? Um, and just thinking about how few resources we often have as, you know, social workers or case management professionals to really help children and families. Um, because I'm thinking even, you know, in my work, there was certainly no training around kind of adoption, um, no training really around like how do we keep children and families 
together, right? And do we even have the capacity to offer services that will allow children and families together? Which is what I think most, the average person doesn't understand. There's a limit to the resources that a state provides to children and families once they come under, you know, the, the lens or microscope of a child protective services. Yeah, and it's really difficult if you're a parent who gets involved in the system um, because then you're so under surveillance um, during the time that you're, um, you know, you're part of somebody's uh, case load. Um, and so I just think about all of us in our, you know, in the days that we're the most stressed and the things that we might do or say, and to know that everything could be marked down in somebody's chart, um, you know, I don't want to minimize or make light of the fact that there are children that are abused and neglected because that, that's not what this conversation is about. Mm -hmm. um, and I recognize that um, we need to have good resources for those children to keep them safe. We also know that especially for BIPOC families, um, a lot of things that they're being pulled into child protection services for um, are things that really point to the, the, the need for better services for, for the parents. And, you know, I think about um, the timelines that we have for parents to quote unquote, get their act together, especially if it's things like if there's a mental health crisis or if there is uh, substance use, those things aren't going to be just like magically cleared up in six months or a year. And we have these really strict timelines for parents to kind of show that they're making these gains. And I just think about the pressure of knowing that somebody is, you know, looking at everything that you do while you're also trying to be in recovery or get treatment. Um, and then all the different times when it's poverty related um, neglect, right? And, um, and also, I think a lot about cultural differences. So I think about how certain uh, especially immigrant families um, become, you know, involved in the system because um, they may do things like let their eight-year-old child take care of younger siblings while they're not at home. And, you know, in the United States, we can't do that, but in other places you can't, right? So there's just, it's such a complicated, such a complicated thing. Um, but, you know, I think that we need to you know, and, and there are movements like just like there's um, movements to abolish, you know, the police or abolish the criminal justice system. There's movements to abolish the child welfare system, as we know it is as, um, as well, because there are just some aspects of it that um, are failing families. And so as a as an entity that's supposed to be trying to protect children and families, um, sometimes in the ways that we protect children, we're actually harming them and we're harming their families. So there, there definitely needs to be a lot more attention and in, in thinking about, you know, how the system is structured and whether or not reforms can work or whether or not we do need to think about creating a whole different way of approaching families that are in crisis. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's take another short break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. J. Ron Kim, Associate Professor in the School of Social Work and Criminal Justice at the University of Washington, Tacoma. And we've been talking about adoption, kind of really debunking some myths and even some stereotypes around children and families. And I think it's just so important for us to have this conversation in a time where we see states continuing to pass more restrictive laws around reproductive rights, and where we're really, I think, rethinking um, parts of different social services or what we should be offering as social services as a nation. Um, and I think we've seen, you know, the, the limits or failures or, 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 you know, all the restrictions that we don't have for children and families, especially not just now, but thinking over the past couple of years with everything that's happened in our nation. And we're seeing some of the ways that we don't have all the social supports and all um, the ways to support our, our citizens, our, our children and our families. So I'm so glad that you are, are with us this morning to talk through um, some of these different topics. 
now. I know we spent a lot of time, of course, talking about some of the, the myths around adoption. And I really appreciate you sharing a lot of the different losses that are kind of embedded in adoption. Because again, I think, you know, a lot of people just think about adoption as a solution. Um, but it comes with, you know, a, a lot of other kind of just issues or losses or just things to consider beyond just kind of this feel good Hallmark movie <laughs> that we often think about with adoption. And I know of, in a lot of your work, you talk, you know, with adoptees and really understanding kind of their own adoption experiences. And so I'm wondering if you could kind of share with us um, some of the, I guess, main or I guess the important aspects of adoption or the ways that adoptees think about their own adoption as well. Yeah, so I'm going to speak mostly from the perspective of um, transracial adoptees and transnational adoptees. Mm -hmm. um, they make up the focus of most of my research. Um, and so um, in addition to some of the things we've already talked about, um, a sense of identity, a sense of knowing who they are, um, having racial mirrors is a really big common theme, for example. So a lot of adoptees of color um, who are transracially adopted are oftentimes placed in white families who live in predominantly white communities. Mm -hmm. um, there's a researcher, an adoptee researcher named uh, Liz Raleigh, who wrote a book selling transracial adoption. And she also did another study where she actually found that um, the average Asian adoptee lives in a less diverse place than the average white child in America. Wow. Right. So we're oftentimes raised in areas where there's no other people that look like us. There's no role models. Uh, there's no racial mirrors, um, you know, and so what often happens is an, as an adult, then the adoptee starts to oftentimes interact with other Asians, for example, or black adoptees might um, interact with other black, black uh, communities. And we feel like we're an imposter. We feel like we don't belong. We don't understand, you know, it's, we're raised in this, these shells of whiteness. And so then we just don't know, you know, it, to me, that's so sad that we grow up and then have to try and figure out how to be part of our own ethnic and racial communities. Um, that's something that I think a lot of white adoptive parents, again, they, they're not doing it on purpose, but they just don't understand how important that's going to be for us to um, someday. In general, I would just say that I think parents, adoptive parents tend not to think long-term. They're so um, kind of immersed in the day-to-day parenting a child that they don't think about the relationships they're going to have with their adopted child in adulthood, right? Mm -hmm. So again, as a parent myself, I think like one of the things that would be so heartbreaking for me is if my adult children said, I don't want to have a relationship with you. And, um, but I know so many adult adoptees who don't have relationships with their adoptive parents. Um, and I think that's something we just don't talk about very much. I once attended um, as a professional, uh, a support group for adoptive parents whose adult adopted children don't talk to them anymore. It was a support group for them um, because they didn't understand why their adult adopted kids won't talk to them anymore. Um, so I, I, it's a phenomenon that we just don't talk about. Um, I just think, you know, it'd be great if we would help adoptive parents and if adoption professionals would help parents think long term and not just about when they're little kids or even when they're teenagers, but really think about the whole life because, you know, we adoptees, we like to say, you know, adoption is a lifelong journey. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we're dealing with being adopted our whole lives. Um, it doesn't end at any point, um, even when we leave our adoptive family home, you know, many of us, um, you know, still have some relationships with our adoptive parents or adoptive family, extended family, but I'm always surprised at the number of adoptees who um, don't have relationships with them or whose adoptive parents said, we don't want a relationship with you and kick them out of the house or place them into some treatment or something where they can just kind of, you know, forget about them. Um, uh, there's more adoption displacement and disillusion than I think society realizes. Mm -hmm. uh, we see some of these big media stories, but, um, but it happens more than, than we know. 
Yeah. Uh, I'm glad that you brought that up because, you know, unfortunately, I think for, for most folks, they kind of get there, they're informed about adoption through these big stories, right? Through these sensationalized stories or through um, kind of like childhood stories, Disney movies, et cetera, that have, you know, an orphan usually right at the center of their storyline. And I'm thinking about superheroes that are, that are orphaned. And I'm thinking about, you know, Harry Potter, <laughs> you know, so it Every is. Every film ever. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, it is kind of part of our culture to think about, um, to think about orphans, right? And so that's kind of, again, how we filter our understanding of what it means to be adopted or what adoption, you know, might look like or who adoptive parents are, or even in the cases where, again, very highly publicized cases of where adoptive parents um, relinquish or transfer custody or in, you know, terminate their parental rights. That's kind of what we see. But like you mentioned, there's a lot more to it. And it's also more common than we might know or be willing to accept. And so I know um, some of your research looks at uh, adoption discontinuity. And could you just kind of explain some of the ways that that might happen and kind of what you see as some of the, the trends or themes within that? Yeah, so when we're talking about discontinuity, that's just an academic term that we use, um, you know, to say uh, when a child, when an adopted child is not living in the adoptive home with the parents. Mm -hmm. And so we, child welfare likes to talk about adoption in this word permanence um, or in adoption parlance, uh, it's forever families. We're looking for forever families or we're looking for permanency. And that just means like we want a legal adoption to happen between a child and their adoptive parents. Mm -hmm. um, so we've, we've heard stories about what we call disillusion. So similar to like a marriage disillusion, um, an adoption disillusion is when the adoptive parents go to court and they say, I don't wanna be this child's parents anymore. Um, it's relatively rare, but it happens more than we think because we don't really hear stories about this at all. Mm -hmm. um, but generally speaking, and then the, we don't collect national data, first of all, in the United States on adoptions and on adoption dissolutions. So I can't give you an exact stat, but um, you know, we say anywhere from like three to 10% of adoptions um, legally dissolve. Part of the problem is we just don't track families long enough to know because yeah. they tend to happen the longer the child's in the family. So older kids, this is usually where it's happening. But the other things that can happen is parents can send their kids to boarding schools. They can send their kids to residential treatment centers. Um, they can just kick them out of the house. So I had like one adoptee who um, was like, yeah, my my adoptive mom took all my belongings, threw them on the front lawn and said, get out. I don't ever want to see you again. Wow. Um, sometimes they make arrangements with other families under their own, you know, formally or informally, we call it rehoming. Um, but the, the general sense is like, you're not having another family that's gone through a home study that's been vetted to be an appropriate family. You're just asking a friend or some stranger sometimes uh, to take your child in. Um, and there was a big Reuters um, investigative report in 2013 about the kind of the underground rehoming uh, listservs where people can, you know, either say they're looking for someone to take their child or that they're looking to take a child. Um, and I would say, you know, there's there's just a lot of the adoptees that I've talked to who have experienced this. Oh, sometimes it's abuse and neglect and they end up in the foster care system. Maybe with, you know, maybe the adoptive parents' parental rights have been terminated, but maybe not necessarily. There's also some things that I've looked at called voluntary placement agreements, where um, usually it's to get some kind of a treatment, but you make an arrangement with uh, your state or your county agency to place your child in foster care, but you don't terminate parental rights and they end up going to some kind of a treatment center. But there's just so little data on this. We are just trying to find out more information about this. And, you know, these are all additional traumas that the adoptees experienced. And it can be really um, 
devastating to them and and when this happens to them while they're still children and then when they become so i talk to them when they become adults um in my research and um kind of ask what the implications are you know and it affects their ability to have relationships you know friendships or intimate relationships with others feeling like they can ever feel settled like they have a place where they belong um, so it can have pretty devastating impacts on adoptees when they experience this kind of displacement and we almost never hear about we never hear about this mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's it's really unbelievable and unfortunate right that this happens but i think it is important that we're aware of it so that we can either a you know for folks who want to get involved in some way right thinking about being a community resource or being even supportive to folks that they know but also again just as we're thinking about these broader debates around reproductive rights and, and some of the conversations that we might be hearing or getting involved with i think it's important that we have a a more i think more complex or more nuanced you know understanding of adoption and so i'm i'm so glad that you're able to to share that with us even as you know really heartbreaking you know as it is um I mean, I think we we just don't have a good a language to talk about this because it's so adoption is so much focused on this, you know, forever family. It's, you know, a win, win, win. And, you know, all these kind of feel good stories. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm with you. I think um, having these discussions, um, increasing people's awareness about it so we can begin to, to have these conversations and then start thinking about how we can better support people, how we can better support adoptees. Um, and through supporting adoptees, we need to figure out how we can better support adoptive parents too. And yeah, yeah. there's so much. <laughs> <laughs> there is definitely so much, but thank you so much for, you know, kind of giving us a little bit for us to kind of think about um, as, you know, we think about adoption, but as we think about families uh, more broadly as well. Um, so thank you so much for being here with this with us this morning. I really appreciate this conversation and for you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you again to Dr. J. Ron Kim for joining us this morning and really, I think, giving us a lot to think about as it pertains to adoption and maybe even helping us think through adoption in new and different ways outside of, you know, just thinking about babies and, and, and families, right? But thinking about adoption in all of its complexity. Um, thank you so much for being here this morning. This has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. And remember, you can always listen to the replays of any of the shows on WYXR.org. And of course, subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. Well, for today's positive note, I want to leave you with this quote that says, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. Oh, I love that so much. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee. I'm here every Monday morning, and I hope that you will join me again next Monday morning as well. <laughs>